The Bible says that those who endure to the end shall be saved. And you all have endured to the end of our study of redemption accomplished and applied. You know that study that I announced about a year ago in December of 2022 that I was going to do in the spring and maybe a little bit of the summer of 2023, but it wound up taking me all of the year, and now here it is in the middle of December, and I'm finally finishing that study. That is the study that you have made it to the end of tonight as we commence with our final lesson on the doctrine of glorification. The final act in the Ordo Salutis, the grand finale that sums up the study of redemption accomplished and applied. Well, before we begin this lesson, it might be helpful to quickly review all that God has taught us thus far. So let me just remind you, we began this series, really we began this series with a one session uh, dedicated to a biographical sketch of John Murray and the importance of his life in ministry. We had a session or two on John 3.16 in context as we studied, did some word studies on the word for world, the word for all. But then we began with the meat of the study with a series of messages on redemption accomplished. And uh, you might remember some of them. They were taught a while ago. (laughs) There was a word that we learned that refers to the work accomplished by the Lord Jesus to secure our redemption. Does anybody remember what word I'm thinking of? What did Christ accomplish? The, yes, say it like you mean it. The atonement, right? The atonement. And we considered the necessity of the atonement. You remember that? And we learned that the atonement has a consequent absolute necessity. And that is a, a, a very complicated, complex way of saying that the atonement was not inherently necessary, but it was necessary as a consequence of the character of God and His sovereign decree to save sinners. In other words, because of the love of God that led God to uh, decree the, the decree of salvation, when God the Father said, I purpose to redeem a people... When God made that decree, it made the atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ consequent, absolute necessity. And um, that means that Christ's atonement was not one of the many ways that God could have chosen to accomplish redemption. It wasn't that, that uh, the Father surveyed all of the options and thought, well, sending my son to die on the cross is the option I prefer. No, it was that was the only way. By the death of the Savior. The atonement was necessary because of the character of God and because of His decree. It had to happen, and it had to happen in this way. It was necessary for Christ to die on the cross to propitiate the wrath of God and intercede for His people. Well, then we studied the nature of the atonement, and we saw that the comprehensive category in which the atonement is understood is the obedience of Christ. In his active obedience, he kept the law in our place, and he earned a positive righteousness. 
and in his passive obedience, he suffered under the penalty of the law on our behalf and died for us on the cross. A, a simple way to remember this, every time as you're reading your Bible, every time you come across, thou shalt do, just remember, Jesus did it for you. And every time you come across, you shall surely die. Just remember, He died for you. He kept the law in your place, but He also suffered under the penalty of the law in your place as a, as a literal substitute. The work, the whole work of the atonement rests completely on the perfect obedience of Jesus Christ. Moreover, we learned that the nature of the atonement was one of a literal substitute who gave himself vicariously for us. He stood in our place. And so that's the comprehensive category, obedience. But then there were four key words for understanding the, the uh, subcategories of the atonement. And they were redemption, sacrifice, propitiation, and reconciliation. In the atonement, Christ satisfies the wrath of God pays our sin debt, reunites us to a right standing before a holy God. Praise the Lord. He meets all of our needs. And finally, under redemption accomplished, we then studied the perfection and the extent of the atonement. And here we saw that the atonement did not secure a partial salvation, but a complete salvation. Christ did not die for some of our sins. He died for all of them. And he did not take away our sins for a time, only to have them come back again later to be charged to our account again. Right? He was a full atonement, a perfect atonement, a complete atonement. Well, then we dealt with the serious and controversial question of the atonement's extent, the dreaded L in the tulip acrostic that uh, has troubled many, of, many a believer, many a Christian. And we ask the serious question, for whom was the atonement made? For whom did Christ die? And we pointed out that based on all that we had learned about the atonement, that it is consequently absolutely necessary, that it is a perfect atonement, that it is a complete atonement, that it is a literal substitutionary atonement, based upon all of that, if we are to be consistent in our theology, we must confess that the atonement was not made for all men without exception. Why? Because if it was, then everybody would be saved. If Christ was the literal substitute for all men without exception, if Christ paid for the sin debt of all men without exception, then hell would be empty. Now, we must confess that the atonement... <coughs> was made for only those who would come to believe in the Lord Jesus and be saved. All for whom Christ died have their sins forgiven, and all for whom Christ died are reconciled to God. This means that Jesus did not die for anyone who would never believe on Him and ultimately perish in hell. Why? Because Jesus didn't die in an attempt to save everyone and then only have partial success in the salvation of some. In Reformed theology, this is called the doctrine of limited atonement. I prefer definite atonement because the emphasis is not on the fact that the atonement is limited to the elect. The emphasis is on the fact that it's a real atonement. He actually accomplished something. And it teaches that he died for his people. 
And he said as, he said as much, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. Greater love hath no man than this, than to lay down his life for his friends. But, brothers and sisters, this doesn't hamper our evangelism. No, it fuels our evangelism. Why? Because we don't know who the elect are, do we? No, but we do know that everyone for whom Christ died will certainly be saved. And so we go out with the utmost confidence that there are lost sheep out there for whom Christ died, and when they hear the voice of their shepherd, they will surely follow him. The one who has accomplished their redemption through his perfect work of the atonement. Well, then we moved into the second part of our study, and we began to consider redemption applied. And we did shift a bit from focusing primarily on the person and work of the Son of God to focusing primarily on the person and work of the Spirit of God. And the overarching question that has guided our study is this. How do we come to partake in the benefits of Christ's death, which he procured 2,000 years ago, when we are living 2,000 years later? What does a Jewish carpenter dying on the cross in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago have to do with me? How does that affect me? How does the death of Christ affect each of our individual lives. Well, this portion of our study has largely focused on the personal ministry of the Spirit because it is the Spirit who applies the benefits of Christ's death to His people. He does this first through the effectual call. When He first comes to you, you are dead in your trespasses and sins, you have no desire for Christ, you, you are an enemy of God, you have no religious affections whatsoever, you're dead. And he doesn't come and help you out a little bit. No, he comes and he breathes new life into you. He effectually calls you. And with effectual call comes the grace of regeneration. And in regeneration, you get a new heart. Your old heart of flesh is ripped out. And you're giving a, or your, your old heart of stone is ripped out. And you're given a heart of flesh. And, and your, your passions are changed. Your desires are changed. Your your love is changed. Your want to is changed. And suddenly you begin to see the Lord Jesus Christ as altogether lovely, as beautiful. And you flee to Him. You go to Him. And with the grace of regeneration come the gifts of faith and repentance. That moves to conversion, right? You're converted. Why must you first be born again? Well, because dead men don't believe. Dead men don't repent. Dead men don't do anything but stink. So he births you again. He gives you this new life. And this new life is a life in union with Christ through faith and repentance. And it is then that we are converted. And as God gives us faith and repentance, it is through our faith that we're justified. So we looked at the doctrine of justification. And justification means what? To be made right with God. To be counted righteous. No change in justification. You're not, you're not made Personally righteous in justification, right? you're declared righteous. Why? Because the righteousness that justifies is a perfect righteousness. And none of us, this side of glory, we're about to talk about how we become perfectly righteous personally when we look at glorification, but in this life, you're not there yet, Buster. Okay? Anybody disagree with that? Hopefully not. Hopefully you uh, have some sense of indwelling sin. 
and you know that, yes, I'm a new creature. Yes, I have desires to follow Christ. Yes, I want so desperately to obey Him and please Him, but I will never be good enough to be made accepted in His sight by my own works, even <laughs> my own works as a Christian. Right? So I, if I'm going to be made right with God, it must be the righteousness of another that's imputed to me. That's what happens in justification. Well, what happens after you're justified, after you're made right with God? Well, then He adopts you into His family, and you become His sons and His daughters. What a beautiful doctrine that is. And then the Spirit begins the lifelong work of sanctification, whereby He conforms us into the image of Christ and grows us in His holiness as He puts our indwelling sin to death, makes us more like Jesus. An interesting thing about sanctification is, so far, sexual calling, regeneration, conversion, justification, adoption, even though we're speaking of them in a logical order, We've stressed this over and over and over again. I trust you all know it. There is no chronological order. So all of these things happen in the self-same instant. There's no such thing as someone who's born again but not yet justified or someone who's justified but not yet adopted. There's a logical order, but there's not a chronological order. Okay, But with sanctification, there's a sense in which it's true of sanctification because sanctification begins when you're converted. God doesn't save you and then leave you in your sins for 20 years, and then when you decide to rededicate your life, then he starts sanctifying you. No, he sanctifies you the moment you're converted. The difference is sanctification is not completed in a punctiliar event. So you are not being justified as a Christian. You are justified. You're not being adopted. You are adopted. You're not being regenerated. You are regenerated. But you are being sanctified. It's progressive, right? It's progressive. Well, then we looked at uh, the doctrine of perseverance. Through sanctification, we persevere in the Christian life as God keeps us saved. And how does God keep us saved? By keeping us believing, by keeping us repenting, by keeping us faithful to the means of His grace through which He nourishes us in the faith. Do you ever pray at night before you go to bed, Lord, help me to wake up tomorrow morning believing in Jesus, still believing in Jesus? Do you realize that the only reason why you, you will wake up tomorrow morning still believing in Jesus is because of the grace of perseverance? It's not because of what a great decision maker you are. <laughs> so we come tonight to the last act in the Ordo Salutis which is the grand finale, the magnificent conclusion to everything that we've studied thus far, the wonderful doctrine of glorification. Let me begin by quoting Murray, who says, by the way, I, I, I have this file in Microsoft Word, you know how you can search stuff? I, I, I've included 41 Murray quotes throughout this series, so this has been a a great exposure to one of the best theologians, American theologians, really just theologians of the 20th century. Let me begin by quoting him on glorification. Murray says, Glorification is the completion of the whole process of redemption. For glorification means the attainment of the goal to which the elect of God were predestinated in the eternal purpose of the Father, and it involves the consummation of the redemption secured and procured by the vicarious work of Christ. 
Murray says, it's the attainment of the goal to which we have been predestinated. When were we predestinated? Before the foundations of the world. God predestinated our glory before the foundations of the world and it will be attained. Do you ever get the feeling in the Christian life? I know your theology's right, but do you ever get the feeling? I'm never going to make it. This life is too hard. I, I can't. I can't go on another day. It's too, it's too difficult. Glorification is the doctrine that says you can and you will attain everything that God has purposed for you in this life and in the life to come. Amen. I'm going to keep this lesson very simple. And I hope that as you see the complete picture of how God has saved you, how He keeps you saved, how He yet promises to complete your salvation, you will be motivated to live the Christian life with more fervor, gratitude, and zeal to serve the Lord Jesus. Uh, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to show you six parallel truths about glorification. Okay, Make a negative statement about glorification and then state the, the parallel positive uh, truth. So you'll see what I mean as we go on. Okay, Six parallel truths. Number one, number one, glorification does not occur at death. Glorification does not occur at death. What happens when we die as Christians? Well, our souls are separated from our bodies. Our bodies return to the dust, and our spirits enter into the presence of God in paradise. That's what happens when we die. It's a wonderful thing. Uh, there are brothers and sisters who have gone on before us who have already experienced that. Paul said in Philippians 1 and verse 21 that to live is Christ and to die is what? Gain. It's gain for us to die. It's gain for our spirits to leave this world, to leave our bodies and to go to heaven and for our bodies to rest in the grave. It's gain. Why is it gain? Because Jesus is in heaven. And our spirits get to go and be with Jesus in heaven. And that's gain. But it's not the ultimate gain. It is through death that our spirits enter into the presence of the Lord. But death is not glorification. You say, Pastor, are you saying that there's something better than for our spirits to be in the presence of Jesus? Yes, there is something better. Absolutely there is. Well, then what is it? The thing that is better than your spirit being in the presence of Jesus is for you to be with Jesus not only in spirit but in body also. And that's what happens in glorification. When you're not just with Him in the Spirit, but in spirit and body with the rest of all the redeemed. Therefore, glorification cannot take place at death because death puts your body in the ground, not in the presence of Jesus. There's another reason why glorification does not occur at death. There's another reason why glorification is better than death because Glorification is our final victory over death. Think about it. 
What is being declared in our glorification? Our glorification signifies that death has no power over us. Death has lost its sting. John Murray says, the death of believers does not deliver us from death. Think about that very logically. Dying doesn't deliver you from dying. What delivers you from dying? Rising again in glory. That's what delivers you from death. And it is our coming resurrection from the dead to live forever in glorified bodies that will proclaim our consummate victory over death. So, first truth is that glorification does not occur at death. Here's, you'll understand the outline. Second truth that's parallel to the first, glorification does occur at the second coming of Christ and the resurrection of the dead. Our glorification happens not when we die, but when we rise from the dead, never to die again. John Murray says, glorification is the complete and final redemption of the whole person when in the integrity of body and spirit, the people of God will be conformed to the image of the risen, exalted, and glorified Redeemer when the very body of their humiliation will be conformed to the body of Christ's glory. The body of your humiliation. That's what you are living in now. Your body has been humiliated by the effects of sin. But the body of your humiliation will be conformed to the body of Christ's glory. You know, he, he lived in a humiliated body too. When he dwelt among us. But what happened? He rose again as the first fruits. Jesus Christ is the only person who has ever been glorified up until this point. Think about that. He's not the only person to ever be resurrected, right? He wasn't the first to be resurrected. But why is he the first fruits of the resurrection? Well, because everybody else up until this point that's been resurrected other than Jesus has not been resurrected unto glorification. They were resurrected and they died again. You know what happened to Lazarus? He rose from the dead in John 11. Great. And then he died again. <laughs> but Jesus rose again, never to die again. And he, for the last 2,000 years, has been sitting at the right hand of the Father in a glorified human body. There's a man, a man at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. And that man is also God. <laughs> you don't become God when you, when you rise again. But you do become glorified. You partake of his glory. Of his glorified humanity. Glorification is this radical change that is wrought upon us by the sovereign and gracious power of God that includes a fundamental change to our natures and a reception of a renewed body. This occurs not when we die, but when Christ comes again to raise us from the dead. Let me show it to you biblically. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 and 17. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 and 17. Familiar passage. Paul says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of 
of an archangel and with the trumpet of God. What does it say? And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. By the way, that word caught up is in the Latin where we get the word rapture. It means the catching away. We're going to be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. The dead in Christ rise first, and then we who are alive and remain are caught up. So this is uh, the picture of our glorification. Christ will come again, and the spirits of the saints who have already gone unto heaven will come with him. So he will descend, and he brings the spirits of the redeemed with him, and the bodies of the redeemed rise up first, and the spirits reunite with the bodies, and those who are alive, there will be a generation of Christians who will be alive when the Lord comes back, and they won't need to be reunited with their bodies, because they'll still be in their bodies, so their spirits will never be separated from their bodies, but their bodies in that same self-same instant will be changed, will be glorified. First John 3 and verse 2 really spells it out. A lot of people uh, go to this verse and don't really see this particular truth in it, but it's there. 1 John 3 and verse 2, Beloved, now we are children of God. And it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, so we're adopted, but we're not glorified. Another reason why, an interesting thing about glorification is that of all the acts of the Ordo Salutis, glorification is the only one that has not even a little bit, kind of, sort of, at all, happened to you. And it's also a punctiliar event. It's not a process. Right? You're not being glorified. You will be glorified. You're being sanctified. You're persevering. But you're not being glorified. So, beloved, now are we the children of God. It has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But listen to this. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. When do we become glorified? When he appears. The glorious appearing. The blessed hope is not just, well, Jesus takes us out of this world of sorrow and woe and brings us up to heaven. And we just have a hunky-dory time. No, the, the, the blessed hope is, he's going to glorify me. I'm going to be like him. And when will I be like him? In body and spirit? And he appears at his second coming. Because glorification occurs at the second coming of Christ, this means that glorification is something that all believers enter into at the same time. I think that's really precious. We all came to faith at different points in our lives. We didn't do that together. Nobody does that together, by the way. Right? Just because brother got saved doesn't mean sister's saved. Just because mama got saved doesn't mean daddy's saved. We all die at different points in time. Our spirits enter into glory at different points in time. It's one of the reasons why we as Christians don't grieve the way unbelievers grieve. Losing a loved one is, is hard. It hurts. But if, if we know that they were a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are able to comfort ourselves 
with the thought of they are experiencing something that is so wonderful. Mm-hmm. And we don't get to experience that with them. But you know what we do get to do together? We all get to be glorified together. Amen. We all get to be glorified together. Even that generation of Christians that will be living when Christ comes, who will never die. Is this not a beautiful picture? Think about this. Of the final act of our Lord in purifying His bride and consecrating His church in a state of eternal holiness. You know, the Bible says in Ephesians 5 that he's preparing for himself a bride without spot or wrinkle or blemish or any such thing. Okay, well, I look around at the church today. Hey, I look in the mirror and I see wrinkles and spots and blemishes. And that's the way it is in this life. But in our glorification, he, he, he does this final act of purification. And I think that's think that's precious um, one of the, the things and, and again we know theologically how to answer this and how to think through this but one of the things that we feel when a loved one who is a believer departs and goes on to be with the Lord is what well we miss them we don't get to spend time with them we don't get to have them again but there's coming a day in which we will be gloriously reunited with them. And the best thing that could ever happen to them or us, we'll get to do that together. We'll get to share that experience with them. I know that's not the focus of our glorification, okay? But it is a comforting thought. And it really should, let me be practical, it really should affect the way we think about our life together in this age in the church. When our brother sins against us, when our sister says something that uh, rubs us the wrong way, remember, this is someone I'm going to be glorified with someday. And I, I, I'm going to think on that day that, that that sin that hindered our fellowship then really wasn't worth it when we're glorified together on that day. In this way, glorification is similar to our election by the Father and the death of of the Son for us on the cross. Just as we were all chosen together before the foundation of the world, that happened to us together, but we didn't get to experience it. We weren't living then, right? Well, same for Jesus' death on the cross. We got to do that together, but again, we weren't there. But we will be glorified together as one body in Christ. We will consciously experience that. I have no idea what it's going to feel like, okay? When we have Q&A after this lesson, please don't ask that one, because I don't know. But it's going to be wonderful. I can't imagine what... I can't imagine what it would be like to exist in a body that's not marred by the effects of sin. And to exist in that body with you guys. Right? Well, we still have two more pairs of parallel truths to consider, but don't get too worried. We're going to move very quickly, because these next two pairs of truths are really just focusing in on things we've already seen. So, third truth here, glorification is not immaterial. Glorification is not immaterial. One of the earliest heresies faced by the Christian church was the false teaching of Gnosticism. Really, it, it, it crept into the church so early that Paul even deals with it in his letters. 
And one of the tenets of Gnosticism was a doctrine called dualism. I've dealt with this before in preaching through 1 Corinthians. Dualism is the belief that all physical matter is bad and only that which is spiritual is good. Right? And so the Gnostics like were influenced in 1 Corinthians. What did they do? They said, well, the belly for meats, meats for belly. God shall destroy both it and them. I can do whatever I want. Eat whatever I want. Sleep with whoever I want because my body doesn't matter. Right? The Gnostics believed that their physical bodies were inherently evil and their good spirits were trapped in their body. So they viewed death as the emancipation of our good spirits from our evil bodies. And they, of course, denied the resurrection. Why did they deny the resurrection? Well, because why would God resurrect a bad, evil body? The Christian view of the body is that while it is true that our body is marred by the effects of sin, our bodies are not inherently evil. God created the human body and pronounced it good. And there's coming a day when God will resurrect our bodies and remove from them the curse and the effects of sin. So, glorification is not immaterial. Fourth truth, glorification does involve the complete redemption of our bodies. One of the reasons why some Christians have a misplaced fear of the eternal state and they, they cling to this world is because of a false view that eternity will be immaterial. It's hard to imagine an existence apart from our bodies. That's a dimension that we can't understand. And it is true that our spirits will exist in such a condition during the intermediate state between our death and our resurrection. At least I don't have any biblical support for some sort of intermediate body in heaven, right? So we exist in that way during the intermediate state when our body and our spirit are separated. But after we are glorified at the second coming of Christ, we exist forever, not as disembodied spirits, but as glorified saints dwelling in glorified bodies. That means, and again, I'm, I'm teaching things tonight that I don't fully understand, but that means that part of the glories of heaven will be experiencing joy and pleasure in our glorified bodies. And this is a pleasure and joy that though we don't understand it, I guarantee you it so surpasses what we are able to experience now in the fallen condition that characterizes the current state of our bodies. These bodies that have been marred and defiled by sin will be made new in the resurrection. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 17, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. By the way, notice the Bible doesn't say that God makes all new things. He doesn't make all new things. He makes all things new. So what is the implication? The implication is that God doesn't create you a new body in the resurrection. He glorifies the body you already have. Why? Because the body you already have is not inherently evil. There is a dignity to your body. Don't worship your body, but also don't disrespect and trash your body. So glorification involves the full redemption of our body. The only thing wrong with our bodies is sin and glorification. There's no manufacturer defects, okay? 
That, that's, that's, that's the thought of the unbelieving world. And you know, you have the crowd that says, why did God create me this way? He didn't create you that way. Sin is what made you that way. And in glorification, God removes every trace and stain of sin from our bodies. One last pair of truths. Number five, glorification is not individualistic. Now, we've already seen that we're not glorified as individuals. We're glorified as a united body. But there's an even greater dimension to that truth. That is this. Glorification is associated and bound up not only with the resurrection of believers, but also the renewal and restoration of the entire created universe. So what, what happens? And I'm not, this is not a lesson in eschatology, okay? But what happens? Jesus comes back. We meet him in the air. We are glorified when we see him. What happens then? Well, we can debate the timeline and how it all takes place, but all of us agree that sometime after that, whether you believe it's immediate or there's a time period or whatever, there's coming a, a, a time in which he also then renews all of creation. So sixth, last truth. Glorification does involve the final redemption of all believers and even a renewal of creation. Romans chapter 8. We've turned to this text uh, numerous, numerous times in the study. Let me read to you from a few verses earlier than what we typically look at. Romans 8 and verse 21 says, The creation itself also will be delivered. From the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. We await the redemption of our body. And the whole creation groans with us. And the whole creation will be delivered. See, the, the, we don't fully understand just how permeating sin is in the world that we live in. It affects everything. It affects trees and lakes and rivers. Hey, it affects wind. In a, in, a, in a glorified world, there is no tornado that comes through and destroys homes and kills people. And that storm that we experienced 30 minutes from here uh, this past Saturday, what is that? That's the creation groaning. We're not supposed to be this way. It won't always be this way. And we groan. There's coming a day. I love it. Verse 21. The creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption. This is a day that we as believers long for with great expectancy. 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. Verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise 
Have I ever told you that I believe in global warming? I do. In fact, I believe in global warming on a much greater scale than uh, all of the scientists of our day. Because the Bible says that the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with a fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Sounds pretty warm to me. But what is it? It's, it's, it's not a fire that leads to condemnation. Sometimes fire in the scriptures refers to eternal condemnation, but what else is fire a great picture of in the Bible? Purification. Renewal. And I believe that God will remove the very curse of sin from this earth. Glorify it. But notice in verse 11 it says, Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved... What manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Glorification is a very practical doctrine. Everything in this world will soon be dissolved. That affects the way you live your life. (laughs) The last suit you wear won't need any pockets. Because everything you have, every car, every, every dollar that you have, to your name, will be dissolved. So what's important? Material possessions? No. That we live in holy conduct, in godliness, verse 12, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the, el- and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Isn't that wonderful? We're, we're, expect, we're expecting something greater. We're looking for a city which buildings and foundations are made by God. Are you longing for the new heavens and the new earth? Are you longing for the final obliteration of sin? Are you longing for that state in which we shall dwell with our God in a perfect, unending, uninterrupted place of love, worship, and communion? Are you longing to be glorified? As we've studied redemption accomplished and applied, we've seen what a great salvation God has wrought for his people in Christ. Promised from eternity, secured in the work of Christ, applied by the Holy Spirit, and yet there's coming a day when this salvation shall finally be complete, when Christ comes again to glorify his people. Our sin will be forever removed. Our senses will be completely perfected. Our worship of God will never again be interrupted. Our communion with God will never more be broken. And I pray that you're longing for that day. I pray that you have your your eyeballs stamped upon that day. And everything you do in your life is a step forward towards that day. And every day that goes by means we're one day closer to that day. I hope this study of how the God of heaven, who loved even you, 
and sent his son to die for you on a cross and sent his spirit to cause you to partake in the blessings of redemption. For even you hope this study has invigorated your heart and led you to a greater love for Christ and a greater desire to live for his glory, knowing that there's coming a day when you too shall be glorified.